You're listening to Northwest Chinese Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Northwest, including our gathering time, visit us at nwcbc.org. Follow us in our study of God's Word. Good morning. Give me a second. I'm going to get set up. Um, good morning. It is an honor for me to be here this morning, and I'm grateful for this opportunity just to be here with you, to, for us to worship with you, and to share with you from the Word this morning. I apologize if you're running video, because I have a tendency when I speak to walk, like, a lot. And so um, if you feel like you need to, like, back that shot up, because I'm going to be over here and over here in a little bit, so just forewarning for, for video. Um, as Uncle Stan mentioned, uh, Bethany and I and our kids, we've been living here in Phoenix for about two years, and before that we were living overseas for 10 years, so both of our kids are born overseas. Um, but we've been here, and I'm working now full-time as a software developer, and uh, we've been uh, here at Northwest for a few months as we've gone back to being in church in person. Um, but being in Phoenix still feels very new for us. One of the things that I've found in a community of people is that every community has its go-to people for certain problems, certain questions, certain subjects. So for example, if I said to you, I really want to take Bethany out to this nice dinner somewhere here in Phoenix, but I just don't know the restaurants. I don't know the food scene here in Phoenix. Who would you refer me to here at this church and say, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. You probably have someone in mind. You, not, you need to talk to that person. They know all the restaurants. They know where to go. Or if I said to you, you know what, this August, I'm taking my kids and my family to Disneyland, and we've never been to Disneyland before. I'm actually not taking you guys to Disneyland. This is just an example. <laughs> but we just don't know Disneyland, and like, you have to plan, you have to do all this stuff. Who do you know that I could talk to that just has a plan, knows exactly how to do the whole Disney thing. You probably have someone in mind that you would have me talk to. Or if I said to you, Bethany and I love to hike, and now that we're here in Phoenix, we just, we just don't know where we're supposed to hike. Like, where's the good hiking here in Phoenix? Who would you have me talk to? You probably have someone in mind. And in your own circle of friends, in this church, in this community, there are certain go-to people for things for different problems, different subjects that come up. And you think, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so. But those are the easy questions. What about the hard questions when they come to you? If someone comes to you and they say, I I'm just at the end of my rope. I think my marriage is falling apart. And I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Or they say to you, we got a call from the school, and we found some stuff in our kid's bedroom. And I think he's in a lot of trouble. We just do not know what we're going to do. Or they say to you, I'm watching the news, and there is war. There are school shootings. There's just so much going on in this world. I don't even feel like getting out of bed in the morning anymore. Or how am I supposed to raise my kids in this? Who are you going to refer them to? Or 
Do the people in your circle of friends, among your coworkers, among your classmates, or your classmates' families, do they know that you are an option? Are you an option? As someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who has the message of hope and comfort and compassion from Christ, do they even know that they should be coming to you? And when they do come to you, will you have something to say? Will you be ready to respond? What we're looking at this morning is the story of a man who is right in the middle of those questions. And he's about to take his own life. And we're going to look at the story of this man and who he goes to and how that person responds to him. We'll be in Acts chapter 16. You can turn your Bibles there now if you want. Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 34. And we're going to be looking at the story of this man and whether or not, well, a couple things. Who he turns to, it turns out to be Paul, and how Paul responds. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive into this narrative. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are heavy because, honestly, the world is a mess. And in some small parts of our own lives, we're a mess. And in some small parts or big parts of the lives of those around us, they're a mess. And we need hope, and our world needs hope, and the people around us need a message of hope. We pray, God, that you would show us what it means to respond with hope through Jesus this morning. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at the story in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 34. And here's the basic approach of how we'll spend our time together. I'm just going to tell you the story, this narrative, and then we're going to go through it again, and we're going to just look at some key observations. What are some big things that we can just learn from this passage? And then come away with a couple practical steps for what they mean for our lives. Super simple, okay? Your Bible study is pretty much this, okay? Read some of the Bible, observe some things, figure out what does this mean for my life? What am I supposed to do? Okay, super simple. But before we dive into that story, let me set up the story for us. So before we get into verse 25, let's set up the story. So here's what we have. We have Luke, Timothy, Paul, and Silas. And they're on a missionary journey, and they've just arrived at a place called Philippi. Philippi is like in modern-day Macedonia, Greece area, okay? And at the time, Philippi is a Roman colony. So it's been occupied by Rome, and it has this high status in Rome. It was basically called Rome away from Rome. If you're not living in Rome, but you're living in Philippi, it's pretty much like living in Rome. So they run by Roman law. There are Roman soldiers all over the place. They've colonized this little city. Luke, Timothy, Paul, Silas, they come here. They land. And the first person they encounter down by the river is a woman named Lydia. Lydia comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Next, Paul and Silas, as they're walking every day to the place of prayer, okay? So they get up and they're going to the place of prayer because Paul's going to go and teach. Every day that they walk by, they pass a marketplace. And in this marketplace, tons of people selling different things. And among the people in this marketplace, there are two slave owners, two masters 
and their slave girl. Now, this slave girl has an evil spirit in her that makes her a fortune teller. So these two slave owners use her to make money. She does fortune telling, they make money. Now, here's this evil spirit possessed fortune teller girl. And Paul and Silas, every day they walk by. And when they walk by, this girl stands up, starts following them. And as they're walking, she says, hey, everyone, these guys, servants of the Most High God, they are here to tell you the way of salvation. Every single day, Paul and Silas walk by, servant girl, fortune teller, stands up. Hey, everyone, listen up. These two guys, servants of the Most High God, you got to listen to them. They have the message of salvation. Now, this is not the kind of publicity that Paul wants, right? It's not, great, uh, it's not a great customer testimonial when you have an evil spirit-possessed fortune teller vouching for you. But this is who Paul and Silas have vouching for them every time they pass through the marketplace, this fortune teller girl. So finally, after several days, Paul gets pretty fed up with it. We actually read there in scripture, Paul gets annoyed. He's just so tired of it. He's like, I'm so tired of this. And she's following him again, I don't know, day six, day seven. And he says, you know what? Evil spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave. Just like that, evil spirit leaves. And this girl becomes clear-eyed, clear-thinking. No more fortune-telling. Paul and Silas go on their way. Who's mad about this? The men who make the money. Because now they've lost the person who makes the money for them. So these two slave owners, these masters, realize she's not a fortune teller anymore. They are furious. So they round up a crowd of people to go chase after Paul and Silas, and they drag Paul and Silas before the city leaders. And it's kind of hard, like, I don't know what you accuse them of at this point, right? Uh, but somehow they figure out a way. These men are they're advocating things that are not in accordance with Roman law, and so something is wrong with them, okay? Now, the city leaders at the time, they're thinking, well, I don't really know what we're supposed to do with these two guys, with Paul and Silas. But how about this? Let's uh, strip them down, beat them with rods, throw them in jail, I'll deal with them tomorrow. That's basically what the city leaders decide to do, okay? So Paul and Silas are stripped of their clothes. They bring out the Roman soldiers who accompany the jailer and the guards with rods, sticks, and they flog and beat Paul and Silas right there in public. So in 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul is going through the list of different things that he has endured, and he says, three times I was beaten with rods, right here in Acts chapter 16 is one of those times. They beat them with rods, and then eventually they pick them up, and they hand them off to the jailer. And they say, jailer, these men are now your responsibility. We'll be back tomorrow. The jailer takes Paul and Silas, brings them to the prison, brings them to the inner cell. So not one of the cells on the edge, the one in the very middle, because these guys better not escape. Change their hands, change their feet, change those chains to the wall, and then basically says, all right, you guys are here. I'm out of here. And he starts to lock up for the night. Now, on his way, the jailer hears Paul and Silas praying and singing and praising God. 
So he's locking up for the night. He's shutting off the lights. He's checking all the doors, locking everything up, checking everybody's chains, all the different prisoners. And on his way out, he hears praying. He hears praising. He hears singing. And I'm sure he's thinking, these guys, this is some crazy, and he probably calls these men some names that I won't mention here in church, right? Locks the place up, and he leaves. Then we come to Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 34. This jailer has probably left, probably gone maybe outside for a smoke, maybe for a drink, gone to his home down the street because he lives very close by. Maybe to tuck his kids in bed, then he's going to come back here and watch for the night. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he and he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. That's what happens that night. Now, we're not going to go past verse 34, but what happens later is they share a meal in the home with a family, and then he probably looks and he's like, oh, it's almost dawn, sun's coming up. I gotta bring you guys back to jail, sorry. And then he brings them back to jail and he locks them up again. And the next day they're released from prison and they, they, they can go. But this is what happens here with this jailer. Now that we've listened to the story, let's go through and make a couple observations here. About midnight, there in verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. So not only are Paul and Silas praying, singing, and you you remember the day that they just had, right? Stripped in public, flogged, beaten with rods, chained up in the inner cell of a prison, hands chained, feet chained, and they're doing what? praying, singing, praising God. And not only that, the people around them, the other prisoners are listening to them. And later, we notice, right, when the earthquake happens, doors open, chains fall off, this is your chance. Everybody should do what? Get up and run. But somehow, they listened to Paul and Silas, who said, nope, let's just stay here, guys. 
Can you, can you imagine that? These prisoners who weren't just here for the first day, they've maybe been here for weeks and weeks. Now is their chance to all escape. But for some reason, they listen to Paul and Silas. And they don't move. Chains fallen, doors open, and they're just sitting there on the prison floors. And when the jailer comes back, and he sees what's happened, and he's about to take his own life, and Paul comforts him, assures him, no, 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 we are all still here, every single one of the prisoners, you can count. Who does the jailer look to for an answer? Who does he look to for comfort at this point? He turns to Paul and Silas. So the observation for us is that how we handle suffering, whether that's crisis, uncertainty, loss, disappointment, rejection, how we handle suffering affects whether or not those around us might seek us out when they're facing difficult times. How we handle suffering affects whether those around us might seek us out when they're also handling suffering, facing difficulty, facing challenge. How we handle suffering matters. Uncle Stan had mentioned how we had lived uh, overseas for several years, for about 10 years, and we had moved back here to the States in 2020, at the beginning, right before the pandemic began. Um, but our last few years of being overseas were actually really, really difficult. Um, and part of it was, Coming into 2018, uh, we actually saw different friends of ours, some in the city that we lived in, some in the cities, in other cities, who, uh, because of just the environment where we were, um, they were getting detained by police, brought away to some undisclosed location for questioning, uh, deported, having their homes kind of ransacked by security uh, to have devices taken away and stuff, everything dug through. And um, we had some close friends where that happened to them, uh, close to the, well, in 2018. And, um, and that was traumatizing for me. Uh, because when I had heard that news of what was happening to this close friend and their family, um, and they just lived, like, in that building over there. So we lived in this building, they lived in that building. This was happening to them. Um, and I went into crisis mode. And it wasn't until uh, a year after coming back to the States and uh, meeting with a counselor and kind of working through that, that I learned what crisis mode is for me. So when I handle, or when I face suffering or crisis, for me, it is head down, don't worry, we got this. Let's figure out a plan, we're gonna do this. I don't care about any emotions, I don't care about anything else I'm thinking, put that away, right now we've got something to do. And I was in crisis mode like that for like three months. And it was very draining. And there wasn't any of processing. There wasn't any of like the, I'm just really scared. I just do not know what's going to happen. God, are you going to be there for us? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my kids? There wasn't any of that. It was just crisis mode. We've got stuff to do, people. And that's how I handled suffering and crisis. And it wasn't until being back here and meeting with people and kind of processing through that that I realized, that's not the way to handle suffering and crisis. Yes, there's, there's a place for like coming up with a plan and like responding well, but there's also this place for like genuine, oh God, this is hard. And I need to figure out a way to lean on you in this because this is really hard. So I'm still learning that. 
But how we handle suffering, how we handle crisis, how we handle disappointment, how we handle rejection, how we handle uncertainty, all of that matters. It affects whether or not the people around us will come to us when they're facing those similar times of difficulty and crisis. Verse 27. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. So, just so you know how um, jobs worked back then, if you're a jailer, a prison guard for Rome, in a Roman colony like Philippi, you're in charge of that prisoner. If that prisoner escapes, do you know what your punishment is? Whatever that prisoner's punishment was supposed to be becomes your punishment. If you're a jailer for probably a couple dozen prisoners in Philippi, and all of those prisoners escape, do you know what your punishment is? Every single one of their punishments is now on you. So probably this jailer was facing public execution the very next day. No wonder when he comes and he sees the prison doors open, he's thinking, this is it. He takes his sword and he's about to take his own life. The people around us, they can come to a place of genuine, life-changing spiritual readiness in the blink of an eye. You remember what this jailer was thinking as he's just locking up for that night, right? Just another day. Hearing some crazy prisoners praying, praising God, singing, whatever. He's locked them up. He locks up the doors. He's just going home just another day. Have a smoke outside, go tuck his kids into bed, come back and just kind of hang for the night until the next morning. But in the blink of an eye, he is in this place of genuine and life-changing spiritual readiness. And that is what it could be for all the people around you. Your coworkers, your classmates, your kids' classmates' families, teammates on your sports teams, your neighbors. It's just one car accident one lab test result, one dreaded phone call, one layoff, one rejection letter. And those people could be in a place of genuine and life-changing spiritual readiness, ready, hungering, wanting a message of hope and comfort, just like for this jailer. Then we come to verses 31 and 32. After the jailer comes to Paul and Silas, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Paul and Silas were ready with a message. And in that moment of readiness, when someone came to them, how they responded was immensely important. And in that moment of genuine and life-changing spiritual readiness, when people come to you, how you respond is immensely important. I remember um, one time when I was in college, 
And I vaguely remember just the first part of this incident. I was sitting just on kind of the walk uh, where we were studying. And I think I was probably just eating lunch or something. And there was a guy from our church, from our college fellowship. I didn't know him that well, but he was walking this way too. And I said to him, hey, what's up? And he came over to me. I was like, hey, how's it going? I don't really know him. But he looked at me kind of funny. And I said, hey, what's going on? And he said, I just, I just found out my dad died. Like, I just got a phone call. My dad just died. I was not prepared. So I don't even remember what I said to him. But it wasn't anything useful. It was probably something like, oh, um, you going to go home? Or, like, um, wow, uh, sorry, uh, I'll pray for you. I mean, that was pretty much probably it. The reason I don't remember it was because it was that lame of a response. It was a total missed opportunity to offer comfort, hope, healing, in that moment, completely missed. So I still remember that. And kind of look back. It's, you know you have those moments in your life where you're like, I just wish I had said this, or I just wish I had done that. We have like a handful of those that we keep coming back to. That's one of those for me. I have no idea what I said to him, but it was not helpful. Total miss. When the people around us come to us and they are ready, and they need a message, how we respond makes all the difference. It is so important. Paul and Silas knew how to respond. Right away, they turned this man to Jesus Christ. Right away, they started speaking words from Scripture, truth, and hope to this man. Okay, so those are our observations. How we handle suffering affects whether or not people will come to us, seek us out when they're handling suffering. People around us, they can come to that genuine spiritual readiness in the blink of an eye. And when they do come to us, how we respond is immensely important. What does that mean practically for us in terms of some applications? First one that I was thinking about is that we need to see suffering as an opportunity to depend on God, to praise God, to show his sufficiency, we need to see suffering as an opportunity, not something to be avoided. Um, as I was preparing and I was thinking, I was like, what is suffering for us? It's kind of hard um, in the daily life things to think about what suffering is. And I mean, there are some big things Sure, finding out that you have cancer, losing your job, um, having a, a kid yell that they don't love you, slamming the door and like leaving, those types of things. And those come once in a while. And we might feel like those are the big things that I need to prepare for, and, and we do. But actually, seeing suffering as an opportunity starts small. You don't get practice with those big things very often. So we get practice with very small things if we choose to embrace those things. So I'm going to give you a silly example. 
But actually, I think for some of us, this is suffering. Imagine yourself finding that you're waiting for something. You're in line. Maybe you're in the carpool lane uh, waiting to pick up your kids. Maybe you're in line for something. Maybe you're sitting outside waiting for a friend who's supposed to come outside and meet you. And you realize you don't have your phone on you. Like, you start to get like these shakes. You're like, what am I supposed to do for three minutes of my life when I don't have a device in front of me where I can just look at something and just fill myself with content for those three minutes and to fill that emptiness, right? And we just freak out when we don't have our phone for three minutes. So we'll start small with suffering, okay? You find yourself in that position, be willing to say, you know what? God, I can spend some time with you at this moment and just be okay and I'll endure the shakes of not having my phone and just be with you for a little bit. I had to do that this morning when I was sitting and I was like, I'm just, I just wanted to pray, spend some time praying. And after about a minute of praying, I'm like, whoa, where's my phone? Just in case. I don't know why we're so wired for that now, but we are. So maybe it just means, for a moment, not having your phone. Or suffering, if you want to start small, maybe it's the next time you're just hungry. But it's not a meal time yet. It's so easy for us, just run to the fridge, run to the pantry, just get something to fill that feeling of, I need something, I want it now, to just say, you know what? I'm willing to be hungry for the next hour and a half. And somehow, God, if that helps, if that has me depend on you better, I'm going to depend on you better during that time. Small things. Start there. And then eventually, when you get sick, immediately when we get sick, we think, okay, what are the things I need to do to make myself better? And that's fine. You want to do those things. But there's also this element of, God, I'm longing for the day when our bodies won't be broken and we won't need to be sick anymore. And if God, if there's any pain, discomfort that I'm feeling right now that you can use to somehow make me depend on you better, God, use that. How do we take sickness and the suffering of sickness and use that in a way that makes us more dependent on him? Do we see suffering as an opportunity or is it something that we just have to avoid at all costs? Whatever it is, get rid of any pain, get rid of any discomfort. I do not want to suffer. Or do we say, you know what? The suffering has come my way. God, let me figure out a way to, to glorify you in this, to depend on you for this. Because how we handle suffering affects whether or not people will come to us when they are dealing with suffering. So that's our first one. The second one, as an application, is to slow down in our interactions with people to show genuine care and concern. Slow down to share care and concern. One of the things that uh, I was challenged with last year, so in my work, um, I, deal with, I deal with more people than I would like to. Since I'm, a, since I'm a software developer, I just want to deal with computers. But I end up actually having to deal with a lot of people. And so uh, whether it's um, email, Google Meets, Zoom, Slack, WebEx, whatever it is, I'm constantly, through the week, dealing with people, okay? Um, teammates, customers, whatever, always dealing with people. And what I learned last year, and I was challenged with, was how much my interactions with people, especially in the workplace, but everywhere, are transactional, rather than relational. It's all transactional for me. When are you going to have that done for me? 
Or, hey, I have this thing. I can hand it to you now, so you can run with this now. Or, hey, I have that deadline. You know that we have that deadline next week. When am I going to get that from you? Or, hey, we have that meeting. Don't forget that meeting. Constantly transactional. And in a lot of my relationships with people, it's transactional, right? And I was challenged with that last year and challenged to slow down and to not be so transactional. Yes, work needs to happen, but to look for ways to be relational. And so in my work, I started to see opportunities like that. So somebody would say to me, hey, I can't make that deadline. I can't get that thing to you by Friday just because this, we had this family emergency come up last weekend. Now, transactional would be, no problem, Tuesday is fine. Relational is, yeah, hey, don't, that's fine. We can figure out the deadline, but is everything okay with your family? Are, are you okay? And as I've been doing that more with people, because that's come up several times over this last year, I've gotten things like, oh, my wife and I are, are we're moving because the cost of living where we are is just crazy, so we just need to move to this other apartment. Um, it's just been really crazy. Okay? I've gotten things like, yeah, we actually just found out that one of my kids is like in self-harm. And so my wife and I have just been rushing around trying to figure out what we're supposed to do, and like counseling and stuff like that. Or things like, yeah, actually I had to take my dad to the ER last night. And so he's going through a lot of stuff, but I think we might have the medication managed, we're not sure. So these are the things that are starting to come up when it would have been perfectly fine in the work environment for me to just say, no problem. You can't make the deadline on Friday. You know what? Just take another week. We're good. No problem. Mess with me then. But instead, it was, I'm not going to only be transactional. Let's stop for a second. And is everything okay? Are you okay? And it's given opportunities for them to share. And then for me to genuinely like, show that I'm listening and understanding and trying to care for people. And actually, I think that people feeling genuinely heard, understood, and cared for, I think that happens a lot less than we might think. So when you do that in your workplace, or when you do that with a classmate or with a classmate's parent, like it's really significant for them because they don't get that anywhere else. Where you're actually able to say, hey, I, you, I noticed that you've been late like picking up your kid every single day this week. And you guys, is everything okay at home? Do you guys need anything? Is there any way that we can help? And you never know what might happen when we're willing to be relational with people and not just transactional. So slow down to show genuine care and concern for the people around us. Our last application. Prepare for how you'll respond. Get ready. Prepare for how you'll respond. Here's what I mean by this. So one of the things that um, family we've been doing in the last few months is Taekwondo. Okay. Not just the kids, but I'm actually doing it with them. And Bethany is going to start doing it with us too. Okay, so we're all taking Taekwondo together. And there's an element in what we're learning in our classes uh, of self-defense, because they also want to teach everyone self-defense. And I love this part, because they actually, they'll have the black belts, the helpers, or each other, put you in a headlock, like a hard headlock. And they're teaching you how to get out of that headlock whether it's a side headlock or like a front headlock, things like that. Now, before taking self-defense with Taekwondo, I would sit there and I would imagine, if I was in a headlock, like if somebody really aggressively came up to me, put me in a headlock, I think I'd probably do this. I'd probably, yeah, I'd probably do this. I could probably get out of that. 
it's so different when you actually have practice, right? I think about all the things that I might do if it were ever to happen, but it is incredibly different when I actually have a black belt having me in a headlock, and like just the other day, like a big guy, one of our instructor, or one of the helpers, and he has me in a hard headlock for us and for me to actually practice how I'm supposed to get out of this headlock. When I talk about us getting ready, being prepared to respond, I think sometimes we think, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of have a Bible verse in mind, and I'll probably know what to say. You might not. So what does it look like to prepare? You actually could find an accountability partner, find someone in your small group, find your spouse, find someone else at church, and just say, hey, can we role play for just 10 minutes? I just want you to, I don't know, pretend to be somebody who's just hit one of these big questions in life like Alvin was talking about on Sunday. Just pretend to be that person. And I want to figure out how I would actually respond and how I would actually respond with a Bible story or a verse or some word of encouragement. And you'd be amazed how like 10 minutes of just role play will totally up your confidence of being able to respond when the real thing actually hits. So I would encourage you to try to find some time to do that in the next week or two. Sit down with someone and say, hey, can we do this, this exercise that Alvin was talking about, just like 10, 15 minutes. I just want to role play, just to get a little feeling of how I'm supposed to do this. Maybe you want to think about a Bible verse or a story ahead of time, and then come into that role play and get ready and practice it. And then, once you've actually practiced, so for me, I'm not actually looking around for people to put me in a headlock, like in public. But I'm kind of like, if it were to happen, I know what I was going to do. I know what I'd do. And so now for you, you'll have this Bible story or this verse or this word of encouragement, and you'll find yourself looking. Classmates, coworkers, family, friends, if there's any inkling of, oh, they might be hurting, they might need someone to listen, to understand, you find yourself ready, seeking them out, saying, hey, you know what, I noticed that you've been having a hard time with this, or it really sounds like the thing you're going through with your spouse or with your family is really tough. Can I just encourage you with something? And you bring that to them because you're prepared, because you're ready. Prepare for how you'll respond. Get ready. So those are our three applications, okay? See suffering as an opportunity. Slow down to show care and concern to people. And then prepare for how you'll respond. Get ready. When I started sharing uh, this morning, I was talking about go-to people in your church, in your community, in your circle of friends. As believers in Jesus Christ who have the message of hope, you are supposed to be those go-to people. When people are suffering and hurting, when they have questions about why am I even doing any of this thing that we call life? And I think sometimes in the church we secretly hope that we don't get referred to. Send them to Pastor Steve, please, but not me. Maybe we're afraid that we'll say something wrong. And you know what? You might say something wrong. But you have to say something. Even if it's not perfectly correct, that's fine. We have to say something. And we can't just hand them a Christian book or say, hey, let me give you Pastor Steve's card. They are coming to you in this moment of crisis, question, suffering, disappointment, rejection, hurt, and pain. They are coming to you, the church. 
and as the church, we need to be ready to respond to them. Ready to respond with that message of hope that only comes from Christ, because we're the ones who have that message. It's my encouragement to you this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be people of fear, but that we would be people of boldness and hope because we have the message of hope from Christ. Show us, God, the people around us who might be hurting. Give us strength and power from your spirit to respond well, to show them the love of Christ so that they can experience in a new way you, God. We pray that you would use this church for your glory in the lives of those around us. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to follow us on Spotify and hit subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream your podcast. To listen to other sermons and watch our live gatherings, visit us online at nwcbc.org. We look forward to see the difference God will make in your life. Thank you for listening to Northwest Chinese Baptist Church Podcast.